welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to have you guys here. For those who, who don't know me yet, my name is, is Ross Gilbert, and I'm the, the lead pastor here. And we're excited to, to have you guys here. And uh, missing the ladies, but, um, but I know they're having a, a great time. They had a dance party last night. They were doing paint pouring and all kinds of things. So they're having a great time. We have an awesome God. Amen? Amen. Amen. John Matthew was looking for that amen corner. So we're going to see if we can kind of work it in here somehow. But we have, a, we have an incredible God that we serve because of an incredible gospel that we have. I mean, think about, think about really what that gospel contains, what it, what it, what's involved in that, right? When you and I, when we arrive here on planet Earth, we arrive here in, in pretty broken condition, right? We are, we're a mess. We're a disaster because of how we're born. And we're born into sin. We're, we're slaves of sin, it talks about. And, and what that means is it's not just talking about your behavior. It's not that you were you know, uh, addicted to, to lying or cheating or manipulating people. No, it, it, being a slave to sin is actually there's this entity, there's this thing called sin or indwelling sin or also oft, at times known as the flesh. And, and the flesh, indwelling sin, was your master. It controlled you. It dominated you. So why, why we look at this world and we go, why is this world so broken and so crazy? And the answer is because of the flesh, because of sin and how, it, how it's controlling everything that's going on in the world, at least those who don't know Jesus. And so that's the condition that we're, we arrive here in, born into bondage and slavery. Hence the gospel, hence the salvation. And so what happens is somewhere along in your journey, someone shared the gospel with you. Someone shared the good news of what Jesus did to set you free, to, to have you live in a way that wasn't needing to depend on the flesh anymore. And so along comes this gospel and, and you make the greatest choice of your life. Simply, you'll never make a better choice. You receive this gift, a free gift. Not one that says, okay, now there's strings attached and now you need to do this. No, no, it is a gift to you of freedom, of life. And you made the choice to accept it. And in that moment, in that split second of a moment, what a transformation. What an incredible transformation that, that literally can, can be summarized in the fact that you were born again. That the sinner, the one in slavery, the one who was a slave to sin in bondage to the flesh, that person was crucified with Jesus. That person was buried with Jesus and now no longer lives. They're gone. And you were born again, a brand new creation, a new person now, holy and righteous, acceptable, approved, lovable, brand new and clean and pure. That's who you were. That's who you were the moment that you were born again. Now, children of God, children of the King of Kings, that's who we are now. But, but notice that the flesh didn't die, right? The flesh didn't go away. The flesh, our old master, is still around. And so that what it's doing now is it is waging a war against you and I daily, multiple times throughout the day, waging war in an attempt to control us, waging war in a way trying to 
to dominate us. And right now it's, it's battling to, to fight for who will you and I listen to? Will we listen to Jesus? Will we trust what he says about us? Will we, will we trust what he's asking us to do? Or will we listen to the flesh? And in doing so, be deceived and becoming now an instrument of unrighteousness. That's, that's our battle. That's what we're facing. And I, I wish I could sit here and, or stand here and tell you that I always trust Jesus, that I never listen to the flesh. And I, I might get away with it because Joy's not here, but my kids are. And so they will rat me out real quick. And so the reality is I, I don't always trust Jesus. There are many times where I listen to the flesh, where I listen to sin, and I am used by sin to bring havoc and destruction in this world. So I get angry. I get frustrated. There was a moment this past weekend, or the past week, where I was trying to fix Bella's glasses, and, and there's that little tiny screw that goes right in the arm. And they're not very cooperative. And they weren't going in, and then it drops. And I go to try and find it, and I move my leg, and I now kick it into the middle of the floor. And I'm, I'm right before going to work, I'm frustrated. I'm slapping the dishwasher, which I thought about. And I thought, no, we're replacing it. It's OK. So I just started pounding on it because I'm angry and I'm frustrated because I got a block goal. Things aren't going my way. Now, was that Jesus? No. That was me listening to the flesh. And it was having a field day with me that morning. There are times where I try to manipulate, try to control people. Or maybe it's just things aren't going my way, so I get moody, and I withdraw, and I disengage. Or I power up, and I, I try to use my, my authority or my position to, to control other people. Or I just check out emotionally, withdraw, go silent, pull away, especially in the moment where others need me the most. But those are maybe the obvious moments. Where even in that moment, I know I'm trusting in the flesh, but I can't seem to shake it. But there are other moments, though, where I'm listening to the flesh and I'm not aware of it. It's more subtle. It's where I'm, I feel like there's something that's up to me and it's my responsibility. I have to pull it off. I have to make it happen. And so I start to follow it that way. And, and you know, we see stories like this throughout Scripture. Think about the story of Moses. He's 40 years old, and he, he knows who he is. He knows that he's a Hebrew, and he sees his fellow Hebrews slaves. And so he thinks to himself, I'm going to set them free. I'm going to lead them to victory. And so one day, he sees an Egyptian beating one of his countrymen, beating another Hebrew. And the scripture says, and he looked to his left, and he looked to his right, and he went and he murdered the Egyptian. Now, which way did Moses not look? He didn't look up. He looked around and figured, I can handle this. I can take care of it. And he went, and he did, as best he knew how. Well, the next day now, word got around a little bit, and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He says, guys, why are you fighting? You're, you're on the same team. You're on the same side. And one of them looked at him, what, are you going to kill us too? He was terrified now. And he bolts, takes off. See, what if the day before, what if instead of only looking left and right, he looked up, and he said, God, what do you want to do? How do you want to handle this situation? It might have been a different story. But you see, Moses in that moment was trusting in his own power, his own resources, his own self to try to handle the problem. 
You see, that's what the flesh is doing as well. It's not always just trying to lead you down a path of immorality. It's primarily trying to get you to trust it rather than God. And you see, that, that part there of, of basically just doing what's right in your own eyes, just trusting in your own self, that's really the problem of Israel. Over and over again, we see that. In the book of Judges, it, it ends on a really sour note. The last verse of the book of Judges says, and there was no king, and everyone in Israel did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. They didn't even recognize God as their king. And therefore, they became their own little king, their own little God, where they would now do whatever they wanted to do, but in their own strength and their own power. And you see, essentially, that's what happens in my life sometimes. I don't know what's happened in your life at times, where you play small g God, where you now want to be the one in charge and in control of everything. And so there are times in our life where we're faced with a challenge or faced with a problem. Maybe it's in our marriage. Maybe it's with our kids. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's our finances. Maybe it's the world and the government and everything that's going on around us. And what we do is we look to the left, we look to the right, and then we do what we think we need to do best. And we never look up. We never, never take the moment of asking Jesus what he wants to do in that moment. And you see, while, while our heart is good and our desires are good because of our new heart that God's given us because of the transformation on the cross, the flesh is lurking. The flesh is deceiving us. And there are times where we don't realize that the flesh is trying to control us, that we would follow and obey its lusts and its desires. And so here's the truth. I am a work in process. I'm supposed to be a work in process, by the way. It's OK that I'm a work in process. I'm not supposed to have it all figured out. I'm still learning. I'm still learning to trust Jesus, to trust Jesus as my, my functional source of life, as, as that power now that's going to love my beautiful family. Can we shut the sub off? And so this morning, what I want us to do, I want us to look at that part of the process, that part of the process where we, we learn to trust Jesus, what that looks like, how that, how that comes about. Because the reality is, it doesn't instantly happen. I didn't instantly trust Jesus perfectly at the moment of salvation. It's something that I've been growing and learning in as I mature. And so that's what we want to discover in this passage, because I think there's something that's key for every one of us in this passage. So let's read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we are burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had a sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we need you. We need you every week, but we need you this morning because this, this truth that you want to share with us, I believe, hits many of us right in those dark moments of life. Those moments where we're in struggles, we're in, in under pressure, and we're, we're facing all kinds of affliction. But Father, there's great hope in those moments because of what you're doing. And I pray, Father, that you would help us have eyes to see it, ears to hear it, 
and a heart to trust and receive it. So I'm going to trust you as best to know how, Lord Jesus, to be the teacher, and that you would take these words and make them real in each of our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. So here's the, the layout. Here's the plan for our, our morning is we're going to first, we're going to kind of go through and study the passage. We're going to kind of unpack it. And, and that's, that's always a wise place to start. Try to understand the passage. But what we're going to do is understand the passage from Paul's perspective to Corinth. Right? Because that's initially what it is. This is a letter that Paul is writing to Corinth. And if you don't understand what Paul was trying to say and how the Corinthians would have received it, then you can go in any kind of direction you want. But it's got to start with, well, what does the passage say? And that's the interpreting it. But then what we want to do is we want to begin to make some application. And in the application, what we're doing is we're going to kind of hypothesize a theory, an idea that there's a, a key principle in this passage. Now, the, the, the danger here is that you can, you can create all kinds of key principles out of a passage that may or may not be appropriate, that may not fit the scripture. And so what you want to do is, with any principle, with any application that you come up with, you want to verify it with other parts of scripture. And so that's what we're going to do, especially with this, this principle that we're going to look at, because we want to make sure it's not just based on our own experience. Because so much bad theology has come out of our own experience and a misunderstanding of that experience rather than out of our Father's word. So let's start with the passage. So the, this letter here, again, it's Paul's letter to Corinth. And we're going to explore more in the coming weeks about really all that's going on in Paul's life and the Corinthians' life at this point. But I, I got a map up here I want to throw up here. And what we're going to see here is you're going to see, uh, I've highlighted some key cities here. So there's Ephesus. And Ephesus was where Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from and, and, and where he, uh, he actually, will, we'll see again, he was traveling back and forth between Corinth there. So that was his starting point. And then he left Ephesus, traveled up the west coast of Asia, and eventually gets to a place called Troas. And then he moved on to Philippi, which is in Macedonia. And it's in Philippi where Paul now writes 2 Corinthians. And so you can see where Corinth is, opposite of Ephesus uh, across the Aegean Sea. And so he's in Philippi right now, and he's going to write to them about something that he's experienced between when he last saw them, between Ephesus and Philippi, something happened in Asia. Now, Paul here, he, he believed that there was something special going to happen in Asia. We're going to see that he believed he was called by God to go to Asia, which I think was true. That God had opened up a door, he says. There was something in his heart that he was going to go to Asia. And I believe that Paul had great expectations of something that was going to happen there. And he probably allowed himself to dream. Have you ever done that? You kind of look forward in anticipation, and you begin to dream what it'd be like. The Maple Leafs in the second round. <laughs> Too soon? Too soon. So we begin to dream and imagine what that could be like and, and, and hope for. And that's what I think Paul was doing. He thought that, you know, he's going to show up and these, these people in Asia, they're going to open up with open arms. That they're going to they're be like saying to him things such as, we were waiting for you to come. We've been praying to this God that he would reveal himself in some way. And now you're here and we're all excited about that. And it was going to be one of those moments where Paul preached and 5,000 people were baptized. And then the next day, Paul preached and 4,000 people were baptized. He expected that kind of of awakening and revival. But as we're going to see, that's not what happens. Instead, something else happens, something much different from that. So he writes in verse 8, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, 
of our affliction. That's the word for pressure, for stress, which came to us in Asia. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Rather than open arms, he faced such difficulty he was overwhelmed. Now, there's a, there's a teaching going along around in the church today that says that God will never give you more than you can handle. Anyone hear that before? I, I see that by, from people where they're basically saying it as, as, a, as a response to as hard as this is, at least I know God won't give me anything more than I can handle, and therefore I'll be OK. Well, that's simply not true. Now, it does say in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 that God will never tempt you beyond providing a way of escape, meaning that, that in any temptation you and I face, there's always a chance for us to trust Jesus in it. But he never says he'll never give you more than you can handle. In fact, this passage would say the opposite. This passage would tell us that God, in fact, has given Paul something more than he can handle. It's overwhelmed him. It's beyond his strength. And it's interesting in the Greek there, the word for beyond is the word hyper. And hyper is used for anything extreme, like hyper speed and, and all these, you know, hyperactive and so forth. It's, just, it's, it's an extreme version of whatever's going on there. A lot of us are feeling hyper disappointment this morning. And then the word for uh, excessive is the word hyperbole. Now think about it. You all know what a hyperbole is, right? It's something that's over the top. It's, it's crazy. Almost to the point of maybe being unrealistic. And yet that's what Paul's talking about. This hyper hyperbole. This extreme over the top stress that he's facing. That's the despair. That's the, the struggle he's in. No wonder he's despairing of life. Now the word there for life, there, there are at least three different words that Paul could have used. He could have used the Greek word bios. It's where we get biology from or biography. It's you're talking about your physical life. And he, he could have said he was despairing of his physical life because he was being persecuted. He was being attacked. He faced that in Ephesus. He, he would have faced it in other parts wherever he went. So he could have been talking about that. He, he could have used the word suke or your soul, meaning that he was, he was despairing in his soul, facing depression and anxiety and, and grief and sadness. He could have used that term, but he didn't use either of those words. Instead, he uses the Greek word for zoe, which is divine life. You see, I, I believe that, that Paul did feel that per physical persecution, and there likely he would have felt that he was going to die even at times, physically. And I do believe that in his soul, he was experiencing despair, depression, anxiety, overwhelmed, and wanted to give up. But he was despairing of God's divine life. I think he was saying, I felt like God abandoned me. I was all alone. Have you ever felt like that? Your prayers just go up in the ether and no one picks up. That there's no one there to, to really care about you. There's no one there to, to speak with you. I know I've felt that way. 
where I, I feel like I've done everything that is my part, everything you've asked of me. I, I've done it. I've, I've tried to, to, to trust God as best I know how in that moment. And, and things just aren't going the way I hope for. And, and so I'm praying, God, change it. God, do something. And then I'm waiting for a response and waiting and waiting. And with each day, I seem to lose a little bit of hope, a little bit of faith. And I'm getting more and more frustrated to a point where I just start to begin to feel worn down and disappointed. Can't catch a break. But there have been days where I just I feel like I can't even catch my breath. I'm just feeling suffocated. And so if that's your story. I want you to be encouraged because you're not alone. There are people in this room that feel that. But even the Apostle Paul felt that. The great Apostle Paul even felt that at times. And it's, it's not like he's a new Christian at this point. It's not like he's immature in his faith. No, no, he's been a Christian for somewhere around 20 years at this point. He's on his third missionary journey. He's already planted countless churches, preached the gospel multiple times, seen miracles, done miracles, written words, parts of the word of God. This is a mature believer. And yet he, too, is struggling with that feelings of despair and hopelessness. So please know if that's you and that's your story right now, you are in good company. But thankfully, it doesn't end there. Because there's a purpose in what Paul's going through. And that's good news, because there's always a purpose. Because if there's no purpose in that struggle, then that struggle is mean, and it's, it's pointless, and it just wears you out. But because there's a purpose, we have hope. So let's see what the purpose was in Paul's life. Verse 9, indeed, we had the sentence of death. Everything going on around us was just death, death, everywhere we turned, with, even within ourselves, meaning he wanted to get off the ride. He wanted just to go be with Jesus. But look what it says, so that. So that is a, a purpose clause. It's saying, here's the reason, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead. We would not trust in ourselves so that we would trust in God. Who is, who is Paul trusting in in Asia? What do you think? According to this verse. Himself. He was still trusting in his own abilities. Despite all that he'd been through, despite all that he had learned, despite all that he'd witnessed, Paul was still at times trusting in his own power. Do you find any comfort in that to know, again, you're not the only one? You see, the Christian life is not one that you and I imitate. It's not one where you and I try to pull it off, where we, where we kind of think, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? Now, I'm going to try and pull that off. I'm going to try and make it happen. The Christian life can only be lived by one person. It's Jesus Christ. It's why he gave his life. It's why he came to live inside of you and I, so that Jesus could be the power, so that Jesus could be the source, so that Jesus could be the love and the grace and the courage for us to face any challenge that this world throws at us. Amen. And so we're learning to trust that now. We're learning to, to, to rely on that strength. And there were times where Paul did that. And there were times where he didn't. There were times where Paul went back to his old ways, 
Or maybe he was trying to organize a church, and maybe he, he felt at times he just needed to, to push things a little bit harder. Maybe he just needed to, to power up at times, or maybe he needed to try to take control of the situation. And so when God sent Paul to Asia, it wasn't so that Paul would change Asia. It was so that Asia would change Paul. That Asia would do a work in Paul that he would learn not to trust in himself. That when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, he actually meant nothing. Paul, you can't love this person. You can't deal with this difficulty. You can't plant this church. You can't do anything of value without me. You need me. You need to trust me. And there are times in your life where you don't. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to send it to Asia. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But it's OK, because the lesson you're going to learn here, that pressure you're facing will lead to a deeper faith and a greater experience of my life in you. And it's worth it. So that was Paul's experience that God placed him in a trial, in a pressure cooker of a situation so that he would learn to trust God and not himself. So let me propose to you that in this passage, what we find, though, is a very important principle, not just the Paul in this moment, but rather a key principle. And so here it is up on the screen. The key principle is this. It is through the difficulties and failures that we experience where we lose confidence in the adequacy of the flesh thus breaking our dependence upon our own flesh as we learn to trust Jesus in and through us. It's the hardships. It's the, it's the rough times in life where God's trying to bring about a change. He's trying to deepen our faith, deepen our trust, so we trust not in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead. See, knowing and experiencing the life and power of Jesus Christ comes in part through training through life's challenges. And these challenges, they teach us practically what it means to trust Jesus in us as our source of life and power. Now, let me be clear. It's not the only way we learn. Right? We, we learn by, by, by listening, by hearing. That's, it's why we're here this morning. Right? You're here to learn about the power of God. You're here to learn about the goodness of God. You're here to learn about who God is and who he is in you and who you are in him. And so we're learning about that. There's knowledge and there's wisdom. And, and so that's, that's, that's changing our, our thinking. And we're being transformed through the renewing of our mind. That's partly how we learn. But it's not the only way we learn and grow. We also have to learn through practice. We have to learn through failure. We have to learn through falling down and getting back up again. And that's going to be true for every one of us. Because it can't only be book knowledge. It can't only be information. It's got to be more than that. Can you imagine for a moment if that's how Olympians trained? They just sat in, in a room watching video after video after video of how maybe a gymnast or a diver or, or any athlete, how that sport runs. And they spend hours and hours in the film room, and then they just show up at the Olympics one day expecting to pull it off. Do you think they're adequately trained? No. There might be a time where they're learning and they're studying, but what are they doing more often than not? They're out there on the equipment. They're practicing their flips. They're practicing their moves over and over again. They're failing. They're falling down. They're getting bruised. And they get back up, and they try it again. And they're getting stronger and quicker and better at it over and over and over again. 
You'll never be a champion until you're actually practicing it. If that were the case, I'd be a great athlete with all the time I spent watching sports. But you got to practice. You got to get in the gym. You got to put it in action. And so that's this principle that, that we're learning about trusting God, but it's not until you and I get into the lab of life where we're faced with circumstances and situations that are beyond your ability to endure, excessively beyond your ability to endure, that we learn how badly we need to trust Jesus. Well, let's, let's verify that this is, in fact, a universal principle that has merit. And we'll do that by looking at a bunch of different passages. And please understand, we could have been here all the way till next Sunday looking at passages. So this is just a small sampling. But Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul says this, his desire is that I may know him. The word there for know is not know about. That's oida. The word he uses here is gnosko. It's an intimate knowledge. It's, it's the kind of knowledge that Adam, gnosko, knew Eve, and she conceived a child. It's an intimate knowledge. And he says, that's my desire. I want to have an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ, but also of his resurrection power. How many people with an amen can say that that's their heart's desire? That was a weak amen. Let's try that again. With an amen, how many people, that's your heart desire? Amen. Amen. There we go. Right? That's why we're here. Amen? We're not here because of the entertainment. Amen. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank you for that one. Get out of here. All right. So we're not here for that. We're here because we want to know Jesus. We want to experience life in Jesus. And so he says, that's our heart's desire. Well, how does that come about? Verse goes on to say that I may fellowship, that I might share in his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Apparently, the way to experiencing life in him includes suffering. It includes trials. It includes difficulties. And without it, you'll never really know Jesus. You'll never really know his power. Because you'll only know a little bit of his power. Because you've never really suffered, if that were the case. John 15, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, the night of his arrest, he says to his disciples, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Oh, that's a good word, by the way. Was the, the vine dresser the one that's in charge of the plant? The one that looks after the plant. And notice our father is the vine dresser. He doesn't trust anyone else to tend to the plant. But what does a vine dresser do? He prunes it. He cuts away some bad things, which we're all excited about, but maybe some good things too, in order that that plant might be more fruitful. And so he says, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's a bad translation, by the way. A better translation would be he lifts up. Think about a, a branch when it falls to the ground, it's, it becomes diseased because it's, it's being blocked from the sun, S-U-N. And so what they'll do often is they'll lift it up and they'll tie it to another branch so that it can receive more of the sun, S-U-N. So every branch that does not bear fruit, what does our father do? He lifts up so it could receive more of the sun, S-O-N. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so it might bear more fruit. That's Paul here. 
He was bearing fruit. He was, he was doing incredible things, trusting Jesus. And God was saying, but there's more. So we're going to do some more pruning. And that plan, if you can imagine the vine, probably doesn't enjoy being, things being cut off, even things that were good and precious and important to it. And it's gone. But it's so that he could bear more fruit, more of the life of Jesus. See, this, this principle is so important that if we miss it, two things will happen in our life. Number one, the suffering you, you endure, the suffering that you experience will feel unnecessary. It'll just feel cruel. You, you'll feel like God's love and faithfulness and his power to you isn't all that great. And you'll be to question it. My friend, my friend Press, he, he's written a book called Rigorous Grace. And He's got this paragraph in here that I think is just so critical. It's so important. He says this, he says, to be clear, talking about the suffering and the, the trials that we face, is to be clear, I'm not talking about the kinds of things you learn from a sermon or reading a book. I'm talking about learning that is honed and developed through the stress and failures you suffer in life throughout your days. When life takes an irregular turn, the inevitable accusation Satan brings to what God brings or makes is that God has abandoned you. He's not doing right by you. Or that your faith is irrelevant to the situation causing you angst. You see, the reality, it's essentially says that you and I learn deeply who God is, who you are, and how your relationship works. Although you may pray for deliverance, and God certainly hears your prayers, routine rescue as a remedy for hardship is the worst thing God could do for you. You will never learn God's ways and construct an enduring faith apart from the struggle. That's what Paul's saying here. You'll never fully know the life of Jesus apart from struggle. So that's one thing. Here's the other thing what happens if we don't understand this principle, if we don't understand how God is working and using our struggles then what it can lead to is believers who are deceived into ignoring what the flesh looks like in their own lives. They ignore what the flesh is capable of. And so what they begin to think is, well, I'm a new creation, and I, I got a new heart, so everything I do must be good now. And so when they power up, when they become selfish, when they get angry and feel justified, they don't see it. And I see that with people, especially in marriages, where, where they're looking at the other person, and they, they say, but they're wrong, and, and I'm right, and, and, and they're all angry about the other person. And I think, you know, being right isn't the point, right? You know, Jesus didn't say, you know, they will know you're my disciples by how right you are in all these circumstances. He says they will know you're my disciples by how you love. And so what we happen to see is this, this sense that we're feeling so right and justified in our own eyes. And there's a way that seems right to us, but it's the way of death, Proverbs says, because we're listening to the flesh because the flesh deceived us into justifying this action and this behavior, which is only hurting those around us. And so if we don't understand that this, this journey we're on, the struggle you're facing, is probably not about changing the other person, but rather about what God wants to do in you, how God wants to bring about a deeper trust in you. If you don't understand that, then what ends up happening is, is you become a little nose blind. What, what do I mean by that? Here's what's interesting. Your nose 
is about one inch from your mouth. Some of you are actually kind of measuring that in your head right now, but that's, that's the truth. Take, it from my, take my word for it. And when you have bad breath, for example, if you drank too much coffee or maybe you ate some bad food, whatever, and now you got some bad breath, didn't brush your teeth, do you notice it? Not often. Not until someone tells you. Or they always are taking a step back every time you're getting too close. And so you don't know it. Even though your nose is right there, it should be the sensor. You're blind to it because it's so normal to you. And that's the thing with the flesh. And so what God needs is he needs something to disrupt that. He needs something to disrupt your life to show you what the flesh looks like, not in your spouse, not in your, your friends, not in your, your coworkers, not in your boss, not even in the government or the world around us, but in your own life. Because if you're ever going to grow, if you're ever going to experience maturity, that's where that change needs to take place. And we see this pattern played out over and over again in stories in the Bible. Abraham and, and his whole journey about having an heir, how he tried to do it in his own strength. First, it was going to be Lot. Then it was going to be Eliezer. Then he actually went and had a child through his, uh, his wife's maidservant. None of them are what God intended. God was going to be the source and the power to do it. We see it in the life of Joseph. We talked about Moses and Jonah and Elijah and Peter. And we just saw one example of the Apostle Paul. And please understand, it wasn't just one time in Paul's life. There were multiple times where God was using the, the struggle to bring about that change. Because that's the point of the struggle. And that's good news. Let's, let's look at another passage. In Romans 5, and verse 3 and 4, Paul says, and not only this, we read this last time, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. We glory in this pressure, in this affliction, knowing that the pressure, the affliction, the stress, the trouble, the tribulations brings about perseverance, the ability to stand up strong under that trial. It creates this strength and the strength proven character and proven character hope. Hope that I can face anything in Jesus. That it may be too big for me, but it's not too big for him. He's got broad shoulders and he can handle it. And so, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. And there's great hope because God is not punishing you with the trial. Please understand, even if the trial is a result of your poor choices, consequences of your actions, it's still not God's punishment. He took care of all of that on the cross. Instead, he's promised to redeem it. And just like that pressure can turn a lump of coal into a beautiful diamond, the good news is God can take your lumps of coal, your poor choices, your mistakes, your sinful actions, your trusting in the flesh, and he will put pressure on it and redeem it into a diamond, something so precious. How do we know this? Romans 8, 28 and 29. For we know God causes all things to work together for our good. Not just some things, not just the good things, but all things to work together for our good. Well, what's our good? The end of verse 29, that you and I would be conformed in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That when, when people see you, they see Jesus. Because you learn the lesson to not trust in yourself, but the God who raises the dead. 
Peter writes about this in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. What does that mean? It means it's going to happen to you and I too. And we can approach it the same way Jesus did, which is he kept trusting his Father. But look what he says. Look at the benefit. He says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Anyone want to be done with sin? Some of you are happy with sin, maybe. Well, if you want to be done with sin, what's the cost? It's going to take some suffering. It's going to take some pressure. Goes on so as to live the rest of the time in this body, in the flesh, on planet Earth, no longer for the lusts of men, no longer the way the world operates, no longer after the flesh, but now for the will of God. Now trusting in Jesus, living his life through us. Please understand, this is not just true of you and I. It was also true of Jesus. Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, Jesus learned obedience to the things that he suffered. Verse messed with my theology for a while. How does an all-knowing God learn something? Doesn't make sense. Doesn't add up. Until someone pointed out to me, before Jesus showed up in Bethlehem, who did he obey? No one. He had no one to obey. Everyone obeyed him. But the moment he arrives here on planet Earth as a little baby, he shows up as a man. Yes, he is God, was God, always will be God, but now he's living as a man. And for the first time, Jesus is under authority. For the first time, Jesus needs to learn obedience. Well, how did he learn obedience? Did he read a book? Listen to a message? Attend a TED Talk? How did he learn obedience? Through the things that he suffered. Through the trials, through the difficulties that, that brought about a perseverance. It brought about a proven character in him. It taught him to be the man he was. And if that's true for him, do you think it's going to be true for you and I? I think so. In fact, later on in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because it's so raw and it's so honest and it's often so ignored. But he says there, the, the second half of verse 5, he says, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. He's appealing to you and I the, on the basis of our relationship with God, that we are his children, he's our father. And he quotes from the Old Testament, he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. That word discipline is not punishment. It's the same root word for disciple. It means to teach. It's the training. As a father, I am teaching and training my kids. My heavenly father is teaching and training me. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the training of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. That word reproved means corrected. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. It's the training and the teaching that's going to strengthen you and allowing you to develop that faith and trust in him. For God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Think about it. As parents, if you didn't care about your kids, then you wouldn't matter what they do, what time they stay up to, what they ate, if they did their homework, if they went to school. It doesn't matter to you because you don't care about them. But because I care about my kids, because I love my kids, because I want to see them succeed, I'm going to correct them at times. 
You, don't, you can't treat people like that. You, you can't only eat sugar. You can't stay up as late as you want. You need to go to bed at this time. Because I love them, I'm going to discipline them. But he says, but if you are without discipline, of which we've all become partakers, every one of us, but if you're without it, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Our fathers, our parents weren't perfect. Some were better than others. Some were complete disasters. I know because I've heard your stories, some of you at least. Some weren't bad. But even the best ones, they did their best. They, they try to teach us these lessons. But he says, we respected them. Shall we, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? This is, this is our heavenly Father. He is perfect. He knows what he's doing. Can we trust him that we might experience real, authentic life? For they disciplined us for a short time as what seemed best to them. They did their best. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. What an understatement. This discipline, this affliction, this, these sorrows, these tribulations, this excessively beyond, burden beyond what I can handle and bear. It's so hard. It's not joyful. What an understatement. It's miserable. It's sorrowful. Phrase your soul. It brings you to, to dark places, just as Paul was, despairing of life. But look how it goes on. Yet, those who have been trained by it, those who have learned and developed a, an, a practical, functional trust in the life of Jesus, not just knowing about trusting Jesus, not just knowing about the goodness of God, but actually trusting Jesus in that moment. Trusting Jesus to love a spouse who's mistreating you, who's not loving you back or not respecting you back. To love a child who's rebellious. To love an enemy who's, who's throwing your name around uh, with mud on it. To, love Je to, to trust Jesus when situations are overwhelming you and you don't know where you're going to go or where you're going to turn. Those who've been trained by their suffering to trust Jesus afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In the moment, it's hard. It's why it's called suffering. But afterwards, it brings about such change. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, a, a passage we'll get to in a few years. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Do you realize, Craig, God doesn't want you to be a strong Christian? Because when Craig's a strong Christian, guess who Craig trusts in? Trusts in himself. And it may look good at times, but there's no life in it. It doesn't offer true, authentic life. He, he can't love his beautiful family. He can't, he can't really help people because he's offering them Craig. A good-looking version of Craig, but at best, it's the equivalent of plastic fruit. Looks good, don't eat it. But God wants Craig to be weak. Because when Craig's weak, who does Craig trust in now? Trust in Jesus. And now we see Christ in Craig. We see real life, real love, and it's real authentic fruit. And maybe it doesn't look as good as the plastic fruit, but you'll want to eat it because it's nourishing. It will, it will serve you well. 
And so he's bringing us to a place of weakness so we trust not in ourselves, but in his power. Now, is this, this journey really necessary? Do we really have to struggle and suffer? Well, I would say absolutely, because what we need today, more, maybe more than any other time in history, is we need men and women of great character, of great faith, of great trust. In a word, we need warriors. I say we need warriors because you and I are in a fight, amen? Ephesians 6, we saw that recently when we were going through Ephesians, right? The battle you and I are in. It's not with other people. It's not with flesh and blood. It's not with your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your coworker. It's not even uh, you know, Trudeau or Ford or any other politician you can think of. It's not with flesh and blood. It's with spiritual forces. It's with the flesh and dwelling sin. Because every day it's coming after you and I. And so it's, we need to be warriors. There's a, there's a great book, primarily for men. It's how God raises men. It's called Father by God by John Eldridge. And he, he talks about how God raises a warrior in a man. He asks the question, how does God raise the warrior in a man? As I think back over the past 20 years, I see now that nearly everything I've learned as a warrior, I've learned on the field of battle in the school of reality, the classroom of my life. I began to see the answer to the question, how does God raise a warrior and a man? Hardship. Something in you knows it's true. I think this is where we've most misinterpreted what God was up to in our lives. As long as we are committed to the path of least resistance, to making our lives comfortable, trial and tribulation will feel unkind. But if we're looking for a dojo, that's a, that's a gym. We're looking for a dojo in which to train as a warrior. Well, then, this is the real deal. What better means than hardship? What better way to train a warrior than by putting a man in situation after situation where he must fight? You will be tested. Like Jesus' desert trial, the enemy comes probing the perimeter. He knows your story. He knows where the weak spots are. But this is your training. This is the spiritual equivalent of, of take a high guard like this, strike from high like this, do it, blade straighter, leg back, bend your knees, sword straighter, defend yourself. That's how we develop a resolute heart. We make no agreements with whatever the temptation or the accusation is. We repent the moment we do stumble. Repent quickly so we do not get hammered. We pray for strength from the Spirit of God in us. And we directly we directly resist the enemy out loud, just as Jesus did in the desert. By the time it's over, you'll wish a few angels would drop a minister to you as well. And I pray that they do. That's how God develops the warrior, through the trials. It builds this strength, our, our, our faith muscle, so to speak. And again, the results, the results are beautiful. We saw in Hebrews 12, 11, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, peace and contentment. We saw last time we were in this, this book about the ability now to comfort others who are struggling. Because in your struggle, you've been comforted. You won't be easily rattled in life anymore. This world will go crazier and crazier, and that's OK. Because I know my father. I know what he's capable of. And I know he's for me. I know he's good. And so you'll have hope even in the darkest of times. That's what he went on to say in verse 10 of this passage. He'll also have the freedom to fail. 
to make mistakes and therefore not take yourself too seriously because you'll know who you are. You'll know who you belong to. And your whole identity won't be wrapped up in your performance anymore. You'll know God. And you'll actually know God because of the journey you and him have been on. And you'll know him in an intimate way. And as we saw in John 15, 2, it will lead to you being a fruitier Christian, bearing much more fruit than the fruit being the fruit of the Spirit. His love, his joy, his peace, his kindness, his goodness, his gentleness, his faithfulness, and his self-control. It's worth it. I am not the man today without my trials. I'm not the man today if, if you take away the things that I've experienced. Now, please understand, I don't want to go through them again. And if there was a way that I could know God the way I do today without those trials, I'm happily making the trade. But the simple reality is I don't know Jesus today without them. And so they're precious to me. And I'm not afraid of them anymore, at least not as much. Now I'm willing to embrace them, knowing what God's going to do. I can glory in my tribulations. Because every tear, every disappointment, every despairing moment's been worth it. And so my challenge to you is if you're going through a time like this, a time of pruning, a time of affliction, a time of training, a harsh time right now, just like the Apostle Paul, Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's financially. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's just disappointment where you're at. I want you to know that God's right there. And he's working and he's teaching you. Even if it's quiet, even if you're despairing of his life, he's right there developing within you a deeper faith and trust. And my prayer for you is that you would embrace the trial knowing that that's what it's going to bring about that you would trust not in yourself, but the God who raises the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a father, a father who knows what we need best, a father that is training us, teaching us to be men and women of, of God, to be mature, fruitful, and effective to this ministry of reconciliation and righteousness that you've called us to. But it comes at a cost. To know you and experience that kind of faith means we're going to have to go to the gym, the gym of suffering and hardship. But thank you, Jesus, that you have a purpose in that and a purpose that will redeem it always for our good. And I pray that when we find ourselves in those moments, that we would embrace all that you're doing. In your name we pray. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.